Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and thank you for tuning in to The Daily Evolver. While we're on summer hiatus from our live podcast, we continue to post commentary on current events, as well as interviews with various integral experts. Today, I'm sharing a conversation with Dr. Keith Witt, integral psychologist extraordinaire, who I speak with regularly on the Shrink and the Pundit series that we feature on the Daily Evolver blog. In the conversation that follows, Dr. Keith and I address a topic that concerns and frankly confuses many of us evolutionaries. And that is, which is the more powerful means of development, psychotherapy or spiritual practice? In other words, is it more fruitful to engage our personality and personal history with psychotherapy or to transcend these things through spiritual enlightenment? Simply put, is it better to work with our story or to simply drop our story? The integral answer is, as usual, both. Listen in as we try to sort out this apparent paradox. And please stay in touch. I love to hear your questions and comments. You can either jot a note or record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. And now, my conversation entitled Spirituality and Psychotherapy, Integrating the Two Great Paths of Development with Dr. Keith Witt. Hey folks, Jeff here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. It's a beautiful Sunday morning, April 28th. I'm on with therapist extraordinaire, Dr. Keith Witt, my good buddy. And you're here from Santa Barbara this morning. How are you doing, Keith? Doing great today. How are you, Jeff? Doing great. Just a little background on Keith, if you haven't listened to some of our previous conversations. Keith has uh, been a psychotherapist for over 30 years, has done tens of thousands of sessions, and is an authentic uh, integral psychotherapist, author of the book Waking Up, which is uh, one of the first and only true integral psychotherapy texts. You can see his stuff on Dr. Keith Witt, K-E-I-T-H-W-I-T-T dot com, including his School of Love and his great series called Therapist in the Wild. Anything else I should add to that, Keith? Well, only there are other books on integral psychotherapy. Mine isn't the only one, but it was one of the first ones. Yeah. And one of the best. The uh-huh. best. Uh-huh. <laughs> this morning we're going to talk about a, a topic that is I think up for a lot of people who are interested in self-development, particularly in the, on the progressive edge of things, and that is the struggle between the psychotherapeutic approach and the spiritual approach to growth. And it's interesting because we go to a spiritual teacher and we hear one thing, we go to a psychotherapist, we hear another, and oftentimes the two really don't connect or meet. And this is where, of course, integral comes in handy. And just to maybe do the lay of the land really quickly here, if we look at the history of humanity and, and the way we've healed ourselves from various mental and behavioral dysfunctions, for most of human history, it was, of course, pre-modern and seen as a spiritual problem, whether it's uh, in tribal times with witch doctors and shamans of being possessed by evil spirits, right on up through traditionalism, which is still very much alive and well today with 
faith healers in various Protestant traditions and, and of course, exorcisms in the Catholic Church. These are still seen as possession of evil spirits at worst and somehow being punished or forsaken by God at best. And so when modern psychotherapy comes in, and I think the pivot point might be Freud, the spiritual stuff was sort of wrung out of the system. And we saw dysfunction as being more of an illness and certainly not something that was necessarily a spiritual problem. And so that began the scientific or rational approach to getting well. And as you say, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. And so now we have two really different lineages and approaches to fixing dysfunction and becoming optimal human beings. And they're not really touching each other very much. In fact, they're often at war. So mm-hmm. that's a basic lay of the land. Correct anything you think is off there, Keith, and, and then add whatever you can add to that. No, I think you really nailed it. You know, Ken has talked a lot about the line level fallacy that happened with modernity, that uh, amber uh, religion fixated spirituality at an amber level and that orange um, modernism uh, and scientism uh, rejected spirituality along with religion. You know, you see that it, it's interesting in the development of cultures how in the 17th century, uh, amber religion rejected Galileo, who was orange science. And then in the 18th century, we saw amber science rejecting green science when the French Academy, along with Benjamin Franklin, rejected Antoine Mesmer, who was having a lot of effects healing people. They couldn't understand what it was, and so they dismissed him as a hoax. He was doing a non-scientific approach? Well, he was doing kind of a trans-scientific approach. One thing about Integral is, you, is, there is there's amber science, orange science, green science, teal science, just like there's amber religion, orange religion, green religion, and so on. And so amber science is really good at dismissing a lot of different perspectives. Uh, and in that case, it was conformist science with the French Academy because coming into the 20th century, scientism just dismissed interiors all over the place, which was crazy when psychotherapy started because psychotherapy is all about interiors. And right. so the psychotherapists coming out into the 20th century kind of had to choose. You know, are we going to choose um, science or are we going to choose the mythological approach, which had, had dominated uh, healing up to that point, psychological healing, spiritual healing. Freud chose um, scientism. You know, Freud um, always wanted to be a legitimate scientist. Freud was kind of depressed and bleak existentially. You can see that in The Future of Illusion, where he dismisses religion as uh, unconscious material turning into delusions. And then the behaviorists, they dismissed spirituality because they didn't understand interiors and basically said interiors don't exist because we can't see them. All dysfunction then is a product of the brain of just behavior, correct? Yeah, learning and behavior. In fact, the behaviorists didn't even do much with the brain initially. It was just dealing with behavior. A lot of them became cognitive scientists in the 70s because their funding ran out for behaviorism and they had to go a little bit more interior. And so they went into to autopoiesis, still avoiding the left quadrants. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Jung did choose myth and spirituality. And in fact, he was probably a, a, a forerunner of the current spiritual-oriented psychotherapist. But then he got a lot of people who studied him 
who became all amber about Jung. In fact, Jung famously once said that he didn't like Jungians very much because they took his stuff <laughs> and, it turned it, and turned it into an amber religion rather than the kind of organic uh, integral approach that he had inside but couldn't really articulate. Well, that led to essentially culture wars in the psychotherapy community, and it led to therapists being hostile, sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly, to spiritual teachers who didn't have to get PhDs and get licenses and stuff, and spiritual teachers being dismissive of psychotherapists who they saw glorifying the ego and working on strengthening the ego, and a lot of the spiritual teachers of the last century especially were all about getting rid of the ego. And so it created this tension, um, which was terrible. It really survives to this day. To a certain extent. I, I see it in conferences. Uh, you can't go to a neuropsych conference and talk about God or spirituality without somebody getting really uncomfortable. Um, and though I got to say, uh, if, if you go to, if you talk to spiritually oriented depth psychologists, people, psychotherapists who are interested in levels of spiritual development, they actually are quite interested in uh, in uh, neurobiology these days. Um, there is com- a coming together in a, in a lot of groups, though you still see the tension happening. You still hear dismissive comments from spiritual teachers about psychotherapy, and dismissive comments from psychotherapists about spiritual teachers. One of the ways that it's coming together, and I see this in Boulder and in the Buddhist community and Europa and Shambhala, and this great encounter between um, Buddhist psychology, which is basically uh, based on introspection and meditation, mm-hmm. and Western psychotherapy, that there's a rich integration that's happening there where people are moving back and forth and using both of those modalities uh, really successfully and, 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 and elegantly. Yep, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of that, practice a lot of it myself. It's an integral approach. People were pathologized psychologically in the 20th century for a variety of reasons. One, psychoanalysis was a pathology-oriented system. But secondly, back in about 1951, the American Psychiatric Association wanted to bill insurance companies and so it came out with a diagnostic manual that took people's distress in life and turned them into diagnoses that were considered analogous to things like infections and uh, broken bones and uh, liver disease. And so you go to a therapist, and to get reimbursed from an uh, insurance company, you needed to be diagnosed as having a mental illness. And there was this mental illness consciousness that kind of permeated psychotherapy in the 20th century. It was either a behaviorist, you, you know, you have lousy behaviors, you've got to learn what the behaviors in the, in the 50s and 60s and, and 70s. There were a lot of my professors. Or it was more of your metaphoric uh, Freudian neurosis pathology. And, you know, all of it basically, from my perspective, missed the whole point of human development. Human development necessarily involves developing in shadow material, internalized conflicts, and the capacity for defensive states. And um, psychotherapy really primarily focuses on supporting people's development. Now, that doesn't mean symptoms don't happen, and that doesn't mean that health isn't a relevant uh, dimension. I think psychotherapy remediates symptoms, enhances health, and supports development. But at least in the 20th century, Enhancing health and supporting development kind of had to be stealth agendas of therapists. Officially, they right. were mediating sim- symptoms. And this was particularly difficult um, 
in this, that split between uh, spiritual teachers and psychotherapists, because spiritual teachers, the, the answer to people having problems like anxiety or depression or relationship problems and so on is, you know, wake up, identify with God, experience yourself as God all the time, and then those problems tend to fade away. And that's exactly true. When you are in a state of unity with spirit, those problems do fade away when you're in that state. Um, Until you leave the meditation retreat. Exactly. We enter different states of consciousness all day long. We are embedded in numerous cultures that evoke lots of states. And all those states have more and less healthy manifestations. And so enter psychotherapy. Psychotherapists go, we understand the change process uh, in certain ways. And to get healthy, you need to, to get healthy within the context of the states that you enter and the cultures that you live in. And I think both spiritual teachers and psychotherapists misunderstood the change process, which is another thing that integral psychology brings to bear um, and offers the field, uh, both spirituality and psychotherapy, the idea of state changes and structure changes, that they're very different. They're related, right. but they're different. It reminds me of a conversation I had the other day with Rob McNamara, who's an uh, integral psychotherapist here. He teaches development at Naropa. And he was talking about how in his work with clients, oftentimes what, what he tries to help them do is to see that what they think is a pathology, such as perhaps codependency, mm-hmm. um, is actually a developmental stage. And there's actually a stage of development where you're supposed to be dependent and codependent on other people. And, and then you grow out of that. And so rather than seeing it as something that went wrong and something that shouldn't be happening, you just see it as a, as a, a natural stage of growth, and it's a, just a really nice reframing that I thought was quite powerful. I completely agree with that. You know, therapists have biases, and the biases that we have is whatever uh, your psychograph is, whatever um, altitude uh, you have on whatever developmental line, and to a certain extent, psychotherapy needs to be a conveyor belt for all developmental lines. There's a more healthy and a less healthy expression at that point. And that, that more healthy or less healthy expression has been studied widely. You know, we have data from um, all eight zones, from all four, four quadrants, about which, what is healthier and unhealthier, unhealthy uh, communication, relationship, um, attitude towards self, worldview, uh, explanatory style, uh, physical uh, activity, diet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And therapists just relentlessly say, let's examine where you are and, and how you're developing and what your direction is, what your purpose is, and let's look at the healthy, unhealthy expressions, and let's keep leaning towards those healthy expressions. And that's the beauty of psychotherapy. In the context right. of a safe relationship, you know, someone is able to receive influence to move in that du- direction, and, and co-creatively, a therapist and a client come up with developmental movement. Yeah, that's interesting. I was reading a book that really was so consequential in my life called The Road Less Traveled. I'm sure you've heard of it by Scott oh, Peck. Yeah. Love that book. You know, big, big book back in the, I believe it was the 80s. He, of course, was a psychiatrist and had this spiritual revelation, was quite spiritual as well. And in his whole book is really an argument for the integration of psychotherapy and spirituality and the book had a huge impact on me I can remember 
I finished reading it one afternoon. It was like a Saturday afternoon. I was reading it in the park. And I went home, and I, I didn't really think that much of it. I was, I was quite moved. But the next morning, I woke up out of a dream. It was a very vivid dream, what, what might even be called a vision, of the church bells in my childhood church ringing. And I woke up into a knowledge of God. It was just that simple. I went from one day being a, a devout atheist to the next day. It's like Jung said, I don't believe in God. I know God. And it was like that. I had a, a, basically a spiritual experience, a state experience, for about the next two or three days that I've never really recovered from. I don't want Aww. to. This is what it took. It took a scientific explanation for the existence of God and spirit and something other than the material to actually you know, talk me into it or to move me beyond science to a, not a pre-rational, but a trans-rational space. And I actually got the book back again because you know, I wanted to check it out. It had been years since I had read it. And the last third, again, is just so brilliant. And he talks about some of his arguments are around synchronicity and serendipity. In fact, I'll just read a little segment that he quotes from Carl Jung. And this is Carl Jung talking about this move with one of his female clients. And it's just a paragraph. This is Jung writing. My example concerns a young woman patient who, in spite of efforts made on both sides, proved to be psychologically inaccessible. The difficulty lay in the fact that she always knew better about everything. Her excellent education had provided her with a weapon ideally suited to this purpose, namely a highly polished Cartesian rationalism with an impeccable geometrical idea of reality. After, after several fruitless attempts to sweeten her rationalism, I love that, sweeten her rationalism with a somewhat more human understanding, I had to confine myself to the hope that something unexpected and irrational would turn up something which would burst the intellectual retort into which she had sealed herself. Well, I was sitting opposite her one day with my back to the window, listening to her flow of rhetoric. She had had an impressive dream the night before in which someone had given her a golden scarab, a costly piece of jewelry. It's a jewelry of a beetle. While she was still telling me this dream, I heard something behind me gently tapping on the window. I turned around and saw that it was a fairly large flying insect that was knocking against the window pane from outside in the obvious effort to get into the dark room. This seemed to me very strange. I opened the window immediately and caught the insect in the air as it flew in. It was a scarab beetle, the common rose chafer, whose gold-green color most nearly resembles that of a golden scarab. I handed the beetle to my patient with the words, here is your scarab. The experience punctured the desired hole in her rationalism and broke the ice of her intellectual resistance. The treatment could now be continued with satisfactory results. Lovely. <laughs> and we've all had those experiences. In the typical sort of first-tier mental structures, that's a regression to you know, some sort of supernatural, amber, traditionalist belief system from a scientific point of view, yeah. rather than a move forward into a spiritual world and a spiritual life that actually includes science. This is the beauty of Scott Peck, 
And his book, The Road Less Traveled, is the reason why it was, they called it chained to the New York Times bestseller list. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 13 years. It was a Guinness Book of World Records at one time. I don't know if it's been superseded or not, but this book hit a nerve with people because, again, it's a scientific rationale. And his biggest argument is that evolution itself is an argument for the existence of God because it is the countervailing force to entropy, to the second law of thermodynamics, which says that all complex systems are running down. And yet we can see that evolution is running up. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, in rereading, it, I remember just how powerful that was for me and how I think it, it just set me up for Ken Wilber's work and, and for the integral world and, and how powerful that is. And that's actually... And I think this is where we're going, and I see this happening in the integral world and the world of evolutionary spirituality in general, is that evolution itself becomes an argument for the existence of God or spirit, uh, rather than a way of explaining it away. I completely agree. And I, I love M. Scott Peck. You, later on in his work, he started working with group fields. He would call it being in community. That a group yes. would shift in the community, and all of a sudden there was a group field that created a a stable state change over a period of time when the group was together, where people put aside egoic concerns, and everybody basically functioned at a green-teal frequency. And the field kept everybody there. And he was fascinated with that and did community-building workshops. My wife attended one of them. Yeah, I attended several of them. I actually became friends with him because in my previous business we did the uh, seminar version of his books, or a couple of his books, particularly Road Less Traveled. And so I got to know him and did those community building exercises, and it was, it was beautiful. I've talked about it before in, in some other dialogues. Uh, you move from pseudo-community, where everybody's putting on their persona and their best face, to conflict, which is just inevitable. Yes. You know, God is too generous. <laughs> God is too good to let us just sit there with our pseudo-community smiles on. So conflict. And then this realization that this conflict, you know, it's just inevitable. It, 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 there's no resolving it. You're you, I'm me. Oh, my God, I'm stuck with you. Here I am. And then you move into the third stage, which is emptiness, which is just like, fuck, I give up. And there's a period of that walking through the desert. And then out of that arises real community, authentic community, as he put it. And we would do these workshops where we would just sit anywhere from 50 to 120, whatever, large groups of people sitting in a large circle in these big rooms. And the only instructions would be, and we'd do, do this for three plus days, would be, number one, speak when moved. And number two, be quiet when not moved. That was the instruction, the beginning and end of the instruction. And the, inevitably, the group would go through those four stages and end up in a beautiful, sparkling, authentic community. It was, it was miraculous. And those four stages mirror the stages of ceremony, Susan Underhill's stages of ceremony, going from initiation, uh, purification, pacification, to initiation, um, to teaching, to illumination, to dark night, to um, unity and dedication. Also, it's gross, subtle, causal non-dual. And the, the thing that th- this adds to the whole field of psychotherapy 
is because people in psychotherapy had observed in encounter groups that people went through similar stages. But what wasn't understood or, or at least clearly taught in, in encounter groups is that when you reach that final stage, out of that field, spirit emerges individually and collectively. Absolutely. And, you, and traditional psychotherapy taught therapists to dissociate from spirit dissociate from the understanding of it, the conversation about it, the experience of it. And so if you have taught yourself to dissociate from it, you don't know that it's there. And if you don't know that it's there when it comes up, you can't help people recognize it and enhance it. This is what Naropa is dedicated to, you know, to a large extent. In modern uh, psychotherapy training that's, that's integrally informed, Therapists know from the inside and the outside what the various stages of spiritual development, stages of fellows, stages of faith, and so on. And so what that does, knowing about that, seeing it when it arises, really uh, supports creating an attunement, a field with clients where we can gather that wisdom, recognize it, honor it, know it in our clients, know our clients as expressions of God, the repositories of human genius and spirit wisdom, as well as people that move through the world having problems, arguing with their kids, you know, uh, drinking too much, having all the issues that people have to deal with in, in an embodied uh, human experience in a variety of cultures. Hallelujah, brother. Hallelujah. I mean, that is so right on. And it, and it actually points to a, uh, a principle that, uh, I have a hard time with when I argue the world is undergoing progress, basically in almost every way. Hmm. You know, it doesn't feel like progress to go from pseudo-community to conflict. Hmm. It actually doesn't feel like progress to go from conflict to emptiness or to the desert. But it is progress. It and is. You, you, we, yeah, and you talked about, you know, even in psychotherapy, people reach these plateaus. Yeah. And actually, before there's a bump up further, there's often a depression again. George Leonard wrote a book called Mastery about change. You know, he noticed that, you know, you can really see this in martial arts studios. I studied karate a lot of years, a lot of martial arts. Because you just really see people develop up levels and you see how it happens. And this actually mirrors other kinds of development. There's a long plateau where you're working, working, don't seem to make much progress. You kind of give up and things get a little bit more difficult and then there's rapid progress. And because people are also complex systems, complex systems are characterized by the fact that if you add energy to them at a particular point, a certain amount of energy coming from the right direction at the right time can cause a systemic change, which in a human being would be a trait change. And so all spiritual teachers and psychotherapists have experienced this at some point or another. You're working with somebody, you're focusing on some kind of developmental issue, a relationship issue, an issue of self-acceptance, an issue of uh, purpose, a sexual issue, uh, your family's issue. You work, 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 and then something happens. All of a sudden, there's a reconfiguration. Usually, it's a state change. People will have a, 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 an illumination that gives them a, a direction to go, grow towards. But every once in a while, it is a trait change. You know, like the experience that you had reading The Road Less Traveled. Every once in a while, things get reorganized. And like that story about, you know, you turn a light on and the snake isn't a snake, it's a coil of rope. You're different after that. Yeah, but you that, can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. Now, if you're a practitioner, you're a spiritual teacher, or you're a therapist, and that happens, that's really very uh, pleasurable to your ego. 
Whoa. <laughs> as a therapist, you're saying. As a therapist, as a teacher. Yeah. You know, wow, this person really changed. And, you know, maybe several people really changed, you know, as you're teaching certain kinds of things. Look what I did for them. Look what I did for them, particularly if you're good at generating a, a particular kind of field, which is really in therapy, 70% of the change, the positive change in therapy has to do with relationship with the client and client variables. Only about a sixth of it has to do with method of treatment, according to a lot of uh, studies. And so <laughs> if you can't observe your own ego, you know, being inflated by that kind of experience, or you don't have somebody around you to point out that your ego is being inflated, then you start making claims about your spiritual teaching or about your psychotherapy. You know, I can, I can create consistent trait changes when really there's no system that can consistently create trait changes. In general, people have to do effort, 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 but then like enlightenment, uh, uh, enlightenment is an accident, but meditation makes you accident prone. Well, that's true for self-awareness also. That's got to be a bit of a relief in a way because you realize that flowers grow and they bloom. And yeah. Kids grow from 9 to 12 and 18. And, you know, the growth, the, you know, the, as Whitman said, the procreant urge of the world is actually, you know, what we just sort of need to nurture and that almost any technique will do. If you practice yeah. it authentically, yes. Though it's really useful as a therapist to know the first six levels of most developmental lines from the inside and the outside. Because if you don't know them, you can't see them. One of the things that Integral did for me is it enabled me to see orange science, green science, amber science, amber spirituality, green spirituality, orange spirituality, teal spirituality. If you can observe that, if you know what that feels like on the inside and outside, it makes it much, much easier to be a guide for people who are just trying to negotiate their way through this complicated life given whatever personality type they are, which has all kinds of, of uh, significance in terms of how people grow and what directions they go, and given how they handle different states, particularly defensive states, which everybody has. This is one, one gift of neurobiology and neurobiological development to uh, spiritual teachers. A lot of spiritual teachers, because they deal so much with metaphor, begin to think that you can transcend biology. You know, I can give up all critical judgment, stuff like that. No, mm -hmm. we can't give up all critical judgment because human nervous systems are making critical judgments regularly. We can alter the way we habitually process critical judgments, and that's spiritual growth. Because as Roger Walsh says, we shift from attack uh, in self-righteous criticism to discernment. A critical judgment is actually a discernment that gives us information about something that feels either better or worse for us, you know, that discernment, that, that compassionate experience is where we want to go with critical judgments. We can teach ourselves to do that. That's a spiritual practice, but also that's a psychotherapeutic practice. Yeah. We actually do want to be judgmental in the sense that we want to be discerning. We Ooh. just don't want to be condemning. Hmm. So we want the discernment without the condemnation in a way, right? Right, which brings us to the root of all problems, which is violence. Psychological or physical violence is basically the root of every single problem that humanity has. Say that again, Keith. That violence, psychological violence to self and other people, or physical violence to self and other people, is basically the root problem of humanity and always has been. Bringing destructive energy to bear on ourselves or somebody else in some fashion, and then rationalizing it, justifying it, rather than confronting it and integrating it.
one form or another, that's where all the problems are. Almost all psychotherapy basically is focusing on that. Defensive states, when people feel threatened, their nervous system goes into a fight-flight response. That fight-flight response says, I've got to attack somebody or I've got to get away. And this person that's coming, our nervous system now biases us to see them as dangerous and to cut off empathic connection with them and to cut off self-reflection at that moment. In a dangerous situation, our nervous system does not want to self-reflect and wants to react. So everybody, human beings, the price of self-awareness is that those kinds of defenses are programmed into our nervous system the first several years of life. We don't have enough consciousness to not program them, but we have enough power to program them. And so then, you know, later on in life we get threatened and we enter a defensive state where we have amplified or numbed emotions, we have distorted perspectives, we have destructive impulses, which are essentially violent impulses, and we have diminished capacities for empathy and self-reflection. How we handle ourselves in those defensive states determines our development, and psychotherapy is all about discerning between defensive states, states of healthy response to the present moment where we're socially engaged and we're not doing violence, and teaching people to notice that stuff and to regulate, adjust from defensive states into states of healthy response. If we do that and we're securely connected with ourselves, with spirit, and with other people, our nervous systems naturally evolve to greater complexity. Greater complexity in humans is deeper consciousness, is greater compassion, is moving towards unity with God. If therapists doesn't understand that, if that doesn't help organize them with their clients, then that whole central aspect of human development kind of has to be relegated to the unconscious processes of therapy rather than the conscious process. How do you work with that with a client? And I'm thinking even myself with myself, my friends, maybe a parent with their child, that violence, the, you know, helping them to see their defensive states. What can you tell me about that? There's two things, Jeff, that are a big deal. One is that shadow is misunderstood, I think, by a lot of the community. Shadow generally is, as often by a lot of people, associated with negative stuff. You know, that's my shadow material, being egocentric or being a dick or you know, screwing up or being mean. But you know, shadow is simply what we can't see in ourselves. And that's just as often the beauty of who we are and the power of who we are as well as the violence of who we are. And so as a psychotherapist, it really helps to know that every human being has these incredible superpowers of consciousness, of self-awareness, um, of being able to uh, focus and intent and action in service of principle. Everybody has a capacity to do this. These are superpowers. These are the things that have dominated this planet and why it's, we're shifting from uh, the Holocene to the Androcene, the age of, of people. And so therapists, if we can see that shadow in people, we can see them as expressions of God with these superpowers and with the capacity to develop more of them, that helps us as we also observe when they come in and there's a problem, in the problem is violence. If someone's depressed, they're doing violence to themselves. I'm not worthwhile. You know, right. if someone is in a relationship and, you know, you know, I'm not happy and, you know, God damn it, I got to, you know, my wife just won't pay attention. You know, they're doing violence to their wife and ignoring their own shadow material. If you know about this, what you do is you anchor yourself in what's beautiful and powerful in them and try to point that out to them, show it to them, and then lead them from that position into observing their violence with interest. Wow, so you want to attack her. So, so, so you think it's a good idea, you know, when your husband gets all dense, you think it's a good idea to elevate your intensity and to 
to attack him with a contemptuous tone and lots of demeaning, amplified, critical statements. That's a good idea. How often does that work for you in your relationship? You know, how often that delivered a husband who says, oh, you're right, I'm such a dick, I'm so worthless, I'm completely <laughs> fucked up, you're so, so right. That's, that's the problem in our relationship. You know, that if never only, happens. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in therapy, you, you anger yourself in their beauty and power, and then you go, okay, let's, you and me together, let's look at the violence, and let's see if there's a nonviolent way of dealing with it, and let's look at how you enter and leave defensive states, and, and we can enter and leave them in the session because in the intersubjective fields you form with your clients, that gives you more ability to make those kinds of transitions because, you know, therapists are used to doing that, helping people with that, and then hopefully they go off in their life and they begin to do that more and more by themselves and with other people. It sounds like you're doing that basic subject-object move where you're having people see their defensive states rather than just reflexively play them out. Yeah. That's a good conceptualization of development, concentric rings of self-awareness. But remember, those, that self-awareness isn't just self-awareness. It's self-awareness that is part of an ongoing process of a human consciousness evolving, which means there's purpose there, and there's hunger, and there's desire, and there's, there's the drive, um, which all need attention. You know, for, there's competition for position on social hierarchies, and there's sexual drives, and there's drives for affiliation, and there's healthy dependence and unhealthy dependence, as you were talking about earlier. I mean, that with codependence, what do you do? You say, okay, we're all dependent, what we want to do is be dependent in a healthy way, and codependence is being uh, dependent in an unhealthy way. So right. let's just observe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that growth principle is really powering the whole system. Yeah. And that's what Scott Peck so eloquently just, by the end of the book, he's convinced you that that principle itself is God. You know, I mean, you could argue with it, but he does a beautiful job of taking, taking the rational mind, taking a scientific rationalist like me when I was 25 or 26 when I read this book, and by the end of the book, convincing me so that I, it was not only an intellectual realization, it was a felt sense, it was a spiritual shift that this whole thing is a movement towards God. And I'm so grateful to him and, of course, to Ken and now the whole movement of, of evolutionary spirituality uses evolution itself as a, basically a, a scientific principle as its core argument. Evolutionary panentheism as described by Michael Murphy. And also, there's, M. Scott Peck was really an embodiment of the bridge between spiritual teaching and psychotherapy. You know, psychotherapy needs the, the, the understanding that the spiritual teachers have been saying forever, but spiritual teachers need something other than be one with God. You know, what would Jesus do for dealing with human problems? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so bringing those two, and also you, the way the, we've all discovered now, the way you transcend ego is you nourish your ego's development until finally it becomes so large that it's no longer just me, it's everybody. There's that bridge. You know, Roger Walsh does it. You can, you can hear it in him when he talks about psychotherapy and spirituality. And, you know, no matter what level you, you enter a system, I mean, some people are very primitive. You know, like uh, uh, there's a series of studies that said people come into therapy with wanting one of three things. People at a real low level of functioning want you to solve their problems. People at a, at a 
you know, probably we're dealing with red and, and some kind of amber. People at Amber, um, going into some kind of orange, want you to give them recipes for getting their needs met. People moving more from orange to green, they want insight. All three of those are legitimate goals of psychotherapy, and each one of them is informed by the stuff that we're talking about. You just, as a therapist, you just can't be, you have to use different language at different levels and different interventions depending upon where people are developmentally. And that's why having a developmental perspective, and particularly a health-oriented developmental perspective, which integral psychology provides, is so useful in psychotherapy. Yeah, health-oriented being as opposed to just fixing some dysfunction. Yeah, pathology-oriented psychotherapy is a flawed concept. And, and unfortunately, it's supported by the medical establishment. And, and so, the insurance companies and... Yeah, it's one of the reasons I don't bill insurance companies directly myself. I mean, can't help but be affected by systemic institutional corruption. And, you know, there's lots of financial institutional corruption in the healthcare industry we don't have to get into, but from a psychological perspective, it's an institutional corruption to deal with people's development from a, from a primarily psychopathology orientation. That doesn't work, as well mm-hmm. as dealing with it from a more strength-based, resource-based, developmentally oriented, and evolutionarily oriented. Everybody feels that impulse, the trait of self-transcendence has been identified as a temperamental characteristic of one of at least seven that we've identified that everybody is born with some amount of. That is evolution's voice speaking through us for self-transcendence. And it's always there, and it's, it's there with with everybody, depend, no matter what kind of issues they have, you know, that voice is speaking through them and needs to be honored and answered and supported. Yeah, beautifully put. Living in Boulder, I see a lot of this when I survey the psychotherapeutic and even the spiritual realms of mm-hmm. teachers and groups in Boulder. And I'm sure in Santa Barbara, it's, it's a lot of the same. Uh, maybe we're skewed by uh, where we live, but it seems like it's happening. You know, it seems like people are getting it. There doesn't have to be that schism between, you know, a scientific, let's fix the problem, let's fix the dysfunction, and, and a more psychotherapeutic, scientific, mixed with spirituality of just nurturing the growth and happiness of each other. And that feels like a move that is well underway. Would you agree? Completely. I, I see yeah. it. Even at the, at the more conservative conferences, when a speaker starts talking about spiritual principles, um, the audience lights up. It's, uh-huh. it's fascinating. And also, the beauty of eight zones. Like you, I was raised in the scientific tradition, and so I got to my spirituality really via the, the, the right-hand quadrant. And then that led me into the left. And... The thing, if, if you go into the upper left and you start doing contemplative practice, most people that I've, I've worked with and I've known, within the first year or two of doing a rigorous contemplative practice, they have a psychic experience of, of some sort. I mean, know it's happened with you, it's happened with me. Jung described yeah. it with the scarab. Um, I can't tell you how many times stuff like that has happened in sessions. And so those psychic experiences, if you are a, a victim of scientism, if you are in an environment where um, you can't talk about those um, without being um, uh, ridiculed or suppressed, 
you're going to dissociate from those experiences and space out about them. And this is what a lot of people do. And when I ask people about their psychic experiences, they'll tell me about them, but they tend to not remember them mm-hmm. elsewhere. Interesting. If, they're, if they're in a culture that doesn't support it, they tend to not, not encode those memories. It's fascinating to me. If you, and if you tell someone that has a real right quadrant orientation about experiences like that, they'll go, oh, that's interesting. And then 10 minutes later, they will have forgotten that you had that conversation. Wow. Yeah. There's just no place, there's no ground for it to be planted in a way, right? Right. And so if that yeah. person's a therapist, what do they do if they have a client who has an authentic psychic experience? You know, they're going to unconsciously create a field that suppresses that rather than looks more deeply into what that might mean about that person's right. development. The more experience you have, the more you move into these directions just because that's just the, the nature of the 21st century right now. These, all these things are yeah. coming together, which, yeah. is, which you're right, is quite beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, and, you know, you're doing your part, man. <laughs> I am doing my part. You're moving the ball. <laughs> I really liked what you said about Scott Peck. The quote from Jung, the road less traveled, you can just see how these principles and these practices are bubbling up out of the collective. Yes. And then they begin to spread. I've been surprised that integral psychology hasn't caught on more in the psychotherapeutic community over the last seven or eight years. But I suspect that if, if not integral itself, then integrally informed systems are going to become more and more and more the norm. And then you see experiences and people and teachers like this bubbling up. And then what that does is it moves everybody forward. Yeah. And this is the difference between the uh, rise of the integral movement and the rise of integral consciousness. Integral consciousness is rising under its own power. It's like you say, you go to these conservative scientific conferences, people light up when somebody talks about spirituality because they're ready for it. Yeah. They're bored. Uh-huh. You know, they, got, they wrung all they can out of the scientific materialistic worldview. They're ready. You know, they may not know anything about Ken Wilbur or you know, any of this, but it's rising under its own power. It's really encouraging. That's the part that's really encouraging. And there's something about us, the, the we space, that keeps us honest. The one thing I really notice that if, if I'm in a we space with someone, we self-correct each other away from bullshit and towards truth. That's certainly true of the psychotherapeutic session, but that's true of all sessions, all interactions. And I think to a certain extent, now that we're, being, we're more field-oriented, we're more community-oriented, there's less teachers that are isolated and not having that experience where people are calling them on their bullshit and, and challenging them to get deeper. And I think that's part of the gift of the West to Buddhism. Because Buddhism yeah. basically came from an amber hierarchical tradition of, of taking vows and promising to do whatever the abbot says. And if you reach a certain point of development, then you're not getting corrected by the people around you. And so America, egalitarian America, God bless it, you know, it's just, <laughs> you know, you've, you've, it doesn't matter how, what kind of a teacher you are. If your student thinks you're full of shit, more often than not, they tell you that. And, and I think that's a healthy thing. The one thing about Ken that has always blown my mind is, is I love Integral, and, and I love the stuff that, that Ken says. You know, not, I guess there's a little bit of amber in there, but mostly it's because I have never found Ken to be wrong about anything. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never found Jeff... I mean, everybody else, I could look at something and go, you know, that's, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense, whatever. Right. 
In fact, uh, I was reading his excerpts and found one paragraph that I kind of disagreed about and got so excited that I put it into a file. And the file was things I disagree with Ken about. And so far, all I've got is that one paragraph. <laughs> that one lousy thing, huh? That one, and, so, and so there's something about the way that Ken brought spirit and understands the way that it all fits together as it's unfolding. There's something about that that so far for me is the best understanding, the one that's the most useful for me as a psychotherapist. And that's why I'm such a, you know, a fan of, of integral psychotherapy and a proponent of it. Because yeah. I just love that. Now, I know that's not going to be true for other people. You know, some people are, don't, don't like those kinds of categorizations. They want to work from a more intuitive standpoint. But even then, you know, an understanding of the lower left quadrant really helps uh, even an intuitive understanding because there's a, there's a flavor to when truth is happening or when progress is happening or when violence is happening. And if you learn those flavors, you can still make the adjustments. You don't have to have all the content. I agree. And uh, you know, and I think of the people who have influenced me, Scott Peck, of course, being one, Ken Wilbur. I often say that uh, a, a large part of my realization was the very title of his book, Up From Eden. <laughs> you know, just oh, the idea that we're, we're not fallen, we're rising. I mean, that shifted everything for me. And, and it just has gone on from there. And like you, I will just sometimes just sit down with sex ecology and spirituality and just open it up and just read and think, my goodness, you know, what a gift. And uh-huh. what a gift not only that he has, but a gift that he's given in his work. I'm just really grateful. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. <laughs> we love you, Ken. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> okay, my brother. Again, Keith Witt, drkeithwitt.com, author of Waking Up. And uh, we're going to do these uh, uh, calls regularly, and there's just no end of the stuff that we can talk about. And it's, it's just as much fun as a guy like me can have. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Keith. Thank you. Thank you. 